turn again to Mark chapter 6. Read this uh, familiar account of Jesus walking on the water to his disciples' aid. Verse 45 through 52. Give attention to God's holy, infallible word. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida while he himself was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night he came to them, walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. And then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. And they're reading there. There are many things in life for which we need a proper fear or respect, dangerous, risky things. You want your little kids to have a healthy fear of the road, right, or of traffic, um, or of trees while skiing. Um, skiing is something that I love, and I've always preached a healthy fear of trees. I've, I've told people before they began they should, not in a sadistic sort of way, but quite the opposite, watch a compilation video of people hitting trees um, to give that kind of... Um, that kind of fear. This is partly on my mind. I just read an article this last week about um, skiing injuries and, and fatalities in the statistics in the U.S. and in Colorado. Um, and it, it confirmed that the majority of fatalities are hitting trees or poles. And that's sobering. Um, but maybe the more sobering part of the article was the average profile uh, of, the, of the average fatality. It wasn't a you know, reckless young teenager. It was a 36-year-old male, which is me, um, <laughs> uh, experienced skier wearing a helmet, uh, hitting a tree. That was the average uh, profile. So that was sobering. Made me wonder: Do I actually have a healthy fear of trees? Um, I, I share, the, share these sobering examples as illustrative of what Jesus once again is teaching his disciples here. Their need for a healthy uh, fear and uh, biblical fear and respect for their Lord uh, in order to live by faith and to live free from life-controlling fears of, of other things. Okay. Uh, this is the second of uh, two, of course, two famous stories that... that find the disciples out on the lake, out on the Sea of Galilee, uh, in some trouble, and Jesus coming to their, their rescue in some way. Um, this is the same evening as the, uh, the previous account, Jesus' feeding of the 5,000, many more than 5,000, um, and Jesus um, sends the crowd away after they've uh, eaten and sends his disciples out across uh, the Sea of Galilee uh, to Bethsaida. And that would take uh, a few hours normally to row across 
uh, that part of the lake. Um, but verse 47 tells us it's still evening. The boat's out in the middle of the lake at that point. Then verse 48, they've been fighting this strong wind, a wind that's against them, and evidently making very little, uh, if any, uh, very difficult progress. Um, Jesus goes out to them in the middle of the lake uh, at the fourth watch. That's the last Roman segment of the night from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So they've been straining uh, at, at the oars uh, all night, literally all night, uh, hardly making any progress. And the, the word translated straining is a very strong word for suffering, uh, really suffering on uh, against the oars there. And there are some ways that we can interestingly compare this with the disciples' last um, trouble, last time they were in trouble on the lake, on the Sea of Galilee. And remembering that some of them are, were fishermen, um, this is what they did for a living uh, on this lake. Um, the, the contrast with that account, that account was a, a great life-threatening crisis, right, a storm, they thought they were going to die. Um, this account, though, is a, is a long, drawn-out struggle to make any progress. Their, their lives aren't uh, threatened, it seems, but they're not making any progress. They're up all night uh, in an exhausting struggle. Uh, it's a wonder they didn't give up and, and turn back and just say, the, you know, the wind's making it impossible to cross the lake now. Evidently, uh, it seems they were trying to obey Jesus, who, who sent them to Bethsaida uh, ahead of him. There are also some ways, though, that this is, is similar to the last account of the disciples on the lake. And for the disciples, maybe somewhat puzzlingly and, and frustratingly similar. Uh, they come into this exhausting, discouraging struggle uh, while they're following Jesus' direction. It's not like one of those scenes in the Pilgrim's Progress where uh, a Christian wanders off the path and, and leaves uh, the Father's will. Uh, the disciples are following Jesus' will and they come into this, this difficult struggle. Uh, there once again, they seem to be struggling without Jesus' help. Um, last scene, it was Jesus sleeping below deck. Now it's, he stayed behind on the shore. And uh, in the scene and the, the story of the storm, you'll recall that the disciples came to Jesus complaining about that. There's no explicit record here of their, their complaining, but you can imagine. Maybe they're having similar thoughts or making similar comments. You know, here we are struggling on the lake again at Jesus' direction, and he's not here helping us. He's back on the shore. Well, this, this whole account is, again, a, a true account. This isn't a, a parable, and yet these episodes are recorded. Jesus taught these lessons to his disciples so that we also would learn for our lives. So we would see ourselves in the experiences of the disciples, the, the lessons, the revelations of Jesus to them. So I want us to draw some parallels to our own lives and experiences and struggles as well this morning. The fact is, for us, we, we do at times face huge crises like a, like a storm, um, sort of one-time massive problems. But more than that, in life, we face just a a struggle to keep rowing, if you will. Right? This discouragement of, of painfully slow progress. Even in things the Lord has called us to do. Or non-existent progress. Perhaps a greater threat to our, our obedience and our faith day to day is not 
um, massive crises, but just the grind of daily struggle, right? The threat of being worn down bit by bit by, by discouragements or repetitive difficulties or lack of progress and things that we're doing or struggling against. And, and often when, like the disciples, maybe Jesus seems to be distant, uh, not giving help or relief that, that you'd like or you're asking for. We can experience that in, in daily struggle against sin. A particular sin. You're just not making progress or making such slow progress in. Or workplace struggles or, or this discouraging grind of a of difficult marriage or other cultural pressures. And, and we often face these things while, like the disciples, while faithfully following Jesus' direction. Walking with Jesus, following His commands, does not make life easier. In many ways, perhaps you feel somewhat like you're rowing against the wind and Jesus is back on shore doing something else. I want to consider, secondly, what the the reality, in fact, was in this passage for the disciples. Looking at number two on your outline, three things about what Jesus is in reality doing. First, in fact, Jesus sees them. He sees them all along. Uh, They didn't know, but Jesus was watching them. Verse 48, seeing them straining at the oars. He's watching from the mountain where He is. He sees their trouble and struggle. And this is simply illustrative of of God seeing and caring for your struggle as well. Psalm 139 uh, puts this as, as powerfully as anywhere in the Bible. It says, Do you know, this is David confessing to God, you know when I sit, when I rise, You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out, my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. He goes on later in the psalm, If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise in the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. There's nowhere we can go. There's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can think uh, that God doesn't see and know. Constantly, Psalm 56 speaks of God keeping records of all of our troubles, putting all of our tears in a bottle. Your struggle matters to God. He knows it intimately. He sees. And uh, that's in part because, as, as we'll see, he, he designed it. So Jesus sees. Secondly, He also prays. It seemed, again, to the disciples that He was absent, but... He was praying. He didn't stay behind to rest or to hang out. What was he doing? He went on the mountain to pray through the night, as it it seems in the Gospels often he did. It doesn't say explicitly here, but can we possibly even imagine that he's not praying for them? For for these his beloved friends whom he's sent into another trial uh, and, and sees them struggling out on the lake. I think we can assume that he's praying for them as well because that's his, his role as, as our mediator. The, the one extended prayer of Jesus that we have in the Gospels, he's praying for his disciples. In John 17, he prays for them. And Jesus prays for you. Again, this, this illustrates his relation to you and your troubles, whether you're mindful of it or not. And the disciples probably weren't while they were struggling out on the lake. Romans 8.34 says that Jesus is at the right hand of God interceding 
for us. Jesus sees them. He prays for them. And then He also comes. He comes to them. Not perhaps when they would have liked or as soon as they might have liked, but in time. In in His perfect timing. The Psalms, Psalm 34, speak to this. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Psalm 147, He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Psalm 46 begins, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, a with us help in our trouble. Psalm 145, the Lord is near to all who call on Him. Jesus sees, He prays, and He comes to them. And Secondly, let letter B on your outline there, I want to think more about His coming to them and how He revealed Himself more fully to them uh, in a couple of ways. First, uh, obviously, of course, in, in walking on the water. Um, and this is, again, a very well-known story, um, well-known to, to children and, and um, probably to all of us. But I, I want you to think a little bit more deeply about how Jesus is revealing himself to his disciples by walking on the water. It's not just a neat trick that he, he, he thought, you know, on the shore, well, if I walked on the water, that will amaze them and show them something more of my divinity. Um, certainly is an amazing miracle, but there's, there's more theological, biblical theological depth to what he's doing here, I think, specifically pointing to who he is as God himself. Uh, in the Old Testament, the waters, the sea, the waves are understood uh, and, and still in Jesus' time uh, by the Jews as, as figures of danger and judgment and trouble. Okay, so in our pop culture and literature, we usually uh, write of the ocean or the beach or things like this in, um, in lovely, happy terms, right? Not, not in the Old Testament. Waves are not something you go play in. They're a figure of judgment and danger. But the Old Testament speaks of someone who walks on the water, walks on the waves. Job chapter 9, speaking of God, Job says, He alone stretches out the heavens and walks on the waves of the sea. Uh, Job 38, God challenges Job with this, Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea? Have you walked out to the middle of the ocean uh, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Psalm 77 says, Your path led through the sea. Speaking of God, your way through the mighty waters. Jesus revealing Himself as this God who walks on the water, alone walks on the water, is also indicated, I think, in His curious statement in verse 48, the end of verse 48, where it says He intended to pass by them. Uh, what, is, what does that mean? Um, I don't think it means he just thought, well, I will, you know, they're already way out there. I think I'll just walk across and meet them on the other side and maybe I'll wave as I go by. Um, No, this is a a specific, almost technical reference, I think, also to God's revealing himself in the Old Testament. So how is it described multiple times in the Bible when God specifically reveals himself to someone? Uh, like Moses in Exodus 33. Um, it said that God passed by him. God told Moses, I'm going to pass by you. And Moses would see his glory and understand uh, his power and his compassion. 
Uh, same with Elijah in 1 Kings 19. The Lord said to Elijah, Go out, stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. The Lord is about to pass by. Right? Not just walk by and wave. This is a, a technical sense for God showing His glory to Elijah. So Elijah would, would trust. Elijah was suffering in that scene. That's the scene where there's the, the great wind and the earthquake and the fire. And God is not in those, but is in the, in the whisper. But then especially again in Job chapter 9, it brings these two things together. God passing by and walking on the water. So Job chapter 9, He alone stretches out the heavens and walks on the waves of the sea. When He passes by, I cannot see Him. When He goes by, I cannot perceive Him. And in context of Job 9 there, Job's recounting this unfathomable separation between God and mankind. There are things that God alone does. Um, he does what man can't do. He moves mountains. He shakes the earth. Uh, he blots out the sun. He walks on water. Right, but of course, these are all this is figurative language about God. Uh, Job wasn't speaking literally of things that, that he's, uh, he knows God does. Job says, I, I can't even see God. Right? I can't see Him when He does these incredible things. But here, in this account, Jesus reveals Himself as that God visibly. He, he literally walks on the water, passes by the disciples to show them God's glory. He, he's a God who's both infinitely removed and separated, like Job was saying, but is now intimately connected to His disciples, having become one of them, right, for them, to suffer for them. He shows himself literally to be that God who walks on water. And secondly, uh, just briefly, another aspect of his revealing himself here is how he identifies himself. He says, "Take courage; it is I." And uh, we might easily miss this in our, our English Bibles, but the, that translates that "it is I" translates the Greek "ego eimi," and in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, um, all of those places where God reveals himself as the great I am, right? I am who I am, or I am has sent me, uh, um, I am has sent you, um, in the Greek that's ego eimi, it's, it's, the same, uh, it's the same phrase here. Right? So perhaps Jesus is um, using that, that designation for God himself here. Jesus is the great I am, or it is I. Well, thirdly, I want to consider why, why the disciples needed this. Why all of us as disciples need what Jesus does for the disciples here. Um, under number three on your outline, verse 52 is what I want to look at particularly here for a moment. There's this, this curious ending to this story where it says, For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. If you think about how Mark is reporting this here, he's not telling us where this story ended. Right? He's telling us where the previous story had ended. The feeding of the 5,000 or 10,000, however many people it was, 5,000 men uh, plus. They hadn't gained any insight from that miracle. And so that's what led to this. Right? Their hearts had been hardened. It's the same word, hardened, as was used of the, the Jewish leaders who challenged Jesus in chapter 3 on, on the Sabbath. Um, they were opposing Him. 
Uh, one, one Greek dictionary translates or defines this word this way, to cause to be completely unwilling to learn, <clears throat> to cause the mind to be closed. It, it basically speaks to not learning what you should learn, right? not understanding what you should understand about something. What should the disciples have understood about Jesus? And the, the incident of the loaves, as Mark says, right? The, the feeding of these thousands of people. Well, Jesus miraculously created this feast for thousands of people following him out, out in the wilderness from, from almost nothing. Right? It probably intended to answer the question for the disciples who, or make them think of the question, who is the one who provides bread for his people out in the wilderness? Right, any, any good Jew knew the answer to that question, right? This, this story of God providing for his people out in the wilderness. And, and Jesus is there re- revealing himself as that God who provides bread for his people. And that wasn't, of course, their first lesson uh, in, in the amazing power, divine power of Jesus. But Mark tells us here in verse 52, they really weren't getting it. They weren't, they weren't getting it. Every time it seems that the disciples have come to understand something more of who Jesus is and see His power and authority and love and the care of God in Him, we're almost immediately given reason to question whether they're really getting it. Right? Whether they're connecting that to their faith and um, living it out in their lives in reality. Uh, William Hendrickson comments that this hardening reflects a sinful neglect on their part of what they've seen in Jesus. And we might wonder, how could that be? How could these men be with Jesus physically, Himself, and, and see the things that they saw, see the miracles that they witnessed? And, and how could they then not, not get it? Not learn from that? But then we look at our own lives right, and what God has done for us and how He's revealed Himself to us in His Word. And, and through others who have taught us. And our own experience of His grace in our lives. And we see how we've sinned against that. How we've doubted. How we've lived in fear or anxiety or despair. How can that be? This also illustrates our lives. And so this point, that this story points to a couple of things that the disciples, that you and I, need. A and B on your outline there. The first is trials. first is trials. Just as in the, the previous story on the lake and the storm, Jesus sends them into this uh, and then uh, is absent in some way, whether sleeping below deck or staying back on the shore. Uh, in, in John's account, in the Gospel of John, his account of this uh, tells us why Jesus broke up the crowd uh, from the feeding of the 5,000, why he sent anywhere home and sent the disciples away. It's because they wanted to make him king, John says. Right? They wanted to make Jesus king. And that uh, wasn't his plan. It wasn't his calling to, in, in, in the sense that they meant that. So that's where things were headed and the disciples were likely susceptible to that. And so he sends everyone away. And, and instead of letting the disciples get swept up in that groundswell of, of um, royal excitement over Jesus and, and being swept up in royalty and victory and fame and so on, Jesus had the, the support to go that direction, certainly the power. But 
Instead of that, he rushes them into another trial, into another period of suffering. And then he delays in coming to them. So why, why does Jesus do this? Does he have some, some pleasure in, in seeing the disciples suffer? No, this is a, another means to test and grow their faith. And the same is, is true for us. Same reason why God allows, as the Bible teaches, allows trials and periods of suffering in our lives. We, we don't know what kind of faith we have without its being tested. Right? It doesn't grow without its being tested. When everything is going well, when we can see the future clearly, when we think we understand how God is working around us, we're not really necessarily exercising faith. Right? Faith, the nature of faith is that it is in and it is despite uh, things that are unseen. It's, it's exercised when it hurts, when it's not maybe what we would choose or what's natural. When you're, when you're, and that's not to say that faith is a, is a blind leap on something that we don't have assurance of. Right? It's, uh, our faith is in God Himself. It's absolutely certain and reasonable. But it's exercise when you're forced to stand on, on that rock-solid object of your faith and press on in obedience and loyalty and trust, even though it doesn't seem clear or best or comfortable. It's painful. I heard another pastor give an illustration of faith in this way, of a little girl hanging from a branch in a tree. Right? and she, she knows she's dangerously high up and she can't pull herself back up. She can't really see the ground or what's below her. She knows if she lets go, she'll probably be badly hurt. And her dad rushes over and stands underneath her and says, it's okay, let go, I'll catch you. And she says, no, I, I can't see you. I, I want to see you where you're standing and how you're going to catch me. And he says, you don't have to be able to see me or how I'm going to catch you. You know me. You know you can trust me. That's, that's the nature of, of faith that Jesus teaches through trials. There was something about the disciples' experience of this that was disconnected from who they should have known Jesus to be by now. That's what Mark is telling us. And that, that led also once again to their fear in this scene. And yet, in one sense, that was the thing the disciples needed. And, and I want to consider then, secondly, that, that, that their fear. And, and this is a theme that particularly struck me that I want you to consider with me. The, the fear in this passage and, and throughout the whole Gospel of, of Mark. The disciples are again described here in verse 50 as terrified. Uh, verse 51, utterly astonished. And it might seem contradictory, but I think we can properly conclude that, that Jesus wants his disciples, he wants people to have a proper fear, and respect, and awe of his absolute power and authority. Well, at the same time, he comes to them and commands them not to fear, right? Not to fear other things. This, this, I think we can understand that this is in part Jesus' design. This keeps happening to people throughout. The Gospel of Mark. Thirteen times fear is mentioned. We had it back in the story of the disciples in the storm on the sea. Right? They were terrified at the storm, we're told. And then they're terrified at Jesus after His miracle. 
then they landed in the land of the Gerasenes. And the Gerasenes, after Jesus uh, heals the demoniac and the pig, their pigs run in the ocean, they're terrified of Jesus too. Uh, we skip ahead to the, the very end of Mark's Gospel. Chapter 16, verse 8, which is probably the last verse in the Gospel. We'll, we'll talk about this when we get, when we get there, but the, the rest of it is probably a later edition. Uh, so the, the last verse in Mark's Gospel is about fear. The women who find the tomb empty react with, with fear and awe at the resurrection of Jesus. The disciples needed that kind of fear and awe before their Lord. And on the other hand, Jesus makes explicit His ultimate goal for them that they not be afraid. Verse 50, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. But the, the key to not being afraid of all the things that we have to fear in this world, in this life, is, is the fear of God. Right? In, in the biblical sense. Right? It's not the... Our English word is not really the best word to capture that, that the fullness of that concept, the fear of God, but that, that uh, fear of, of his, his power and His awesome justice and holiness that's a, a respect for Him and, and a love and affection for Him as our God at the same time. The disciples and you need to be in, in fearful, reverent awe of Jesus. You need to be in one sense in order to trust Him. Whatever we fear in that sense uh, controls our life, our emotions, our, our decisions. And so the Bible teaches over and over the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the very beginning of understanding how things really are. It's the beginning of understanding God's uh, sovereignty, His unconditional love for us, His gracious claim on our lives. So again, almost paradoxically, this is what the disciples, this is what you need to obey Jesus' command. Do not be afraid. Do you know what the most, most common or frequent uh, command in the Bible is? Uh, it's not one of the Ten Commandments, though we can certainly relate it to the Ten Commandments. Uh, it's do not fear. At least one of the most common frequent commands in the Bible. Do not fear some version of that. By my a quick count in my, my Bible software this week, I counted 149 times. That some version of do not be afraid, do not fear, do not be anxious, uh, do not be dismayed uh, is, is given to God's people. That's God's command. Freedom from fear. It's, it's God's command of you. It's His gracious gift to you. Freedom from fear for you who belong to Him and know Him. How does that relate to God's law? How does it relate to the Ten Commandments? That that command is given so often in the Bible. Well, you might think of the um, the summary of the law, the, the greatest command that Jesus gave: love, love for God. Perhaps we could argue then that the greatest demonstration of True love for God, uh, truly having faith in Him, is not fearing. That's the command He gives us most often. Or positively, Jesus puts it positively and negatively here, take courage. Have courage. Uh, do not be afraid. And since fear and, and freedom from fear 
that the, the gospel of Jesus dying on the cross and taking away our, our guilt and punishments, defeating death and evil for all time, since that's such a, a theme in the Bible, it's no surprise we find these encouragements in, in the last words that Jesus leaves with us in the Bible, in the book of Revelation. Not the very last words of that book, but I'm thinking of that book in general. One of the final commands in the Bible in Revelation 19 is a command to God's people to praise Him. It says, From the throne came a loud voice, Praise our God, all you His servants. You who, what? How does that last command define God's people? You who fear Him. That's who you are as God's people. The answer to fear, the motive for joyful praise of God, is the fear of God. That, that biblical respect and affection for God. And that final revelation of Jesus begins with John's vision of Jesus himself uh, in Revelation chapter 1. And John relating this to us. He says, When I saw him, saw Jesus, I fell at his feet though dead. John had a proper biblical fear and reverence for Jesus. And then it says this, Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. That was Jesus' command and comfort to John as he began that, that revelation of the book of Revelation. Jesus puts his hand on each one of you, as it were, um, as his brothers and sisters, and says, take courage, do not fear, do not be afraid. So whether you're going through a, a big crisis or you're struggling through just the grind of everyday troubles and disappointments and lack of progress, uh, let that be your comfort this morning. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we uh, thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for uh, teaching us uh, proper and necessary uh, fear, a biblical fear and respect for you, uh, your power and your holiness, your justice. We thank you that in our relationship with you as Father, through Christ as our elder brother and the guidance of the Holy Spirit that that includes a, a love and affection and comfort and assurance, uh, knowing you in, in biblical fear. Uh, we pray that you would lead us more and more away from fear and discouragement and despair at, at the things that we experience in this life, and that our attention would be turned more and more to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.